Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, March 2nd, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool analyst Yasser El Shimi as we talk about one of the hottest fashion stocks on the market today, Farfetch. Yasser, thanks so much for joining. I think this is your first time on Industry Focus, is that right? That is right, Emily. And honestly, it feels a bit surreal. I've been a longtime fan of yours and of the show itself. Uh, I still remember a few years ago just walking my dog down the street, listening to David Gardner grill you over Etsy's market cap. And uh, I remember, you know, like at that time I had an epiphany. I was like, I really want to do this. This is, you know, I I love this. So uh, here I am now and uh, very much looking forward to it. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know about the Rule Breaker Investing podcast from David Gardner, uh, the Motley Fool's co-founder, one of his regular segments is what he calls the Market Cap Game Show, where he pulls a few analysts on and, and essentially has them <laughs> quiz over the market caps of various companies. And I have been on it a number of times, also embarrassed myself a number of times. In particular, I think the worst one was guessing the market cap of America. And it was a company I had never heard of before. Uh, David gave me a hint and said they own U-Haul. So they're the U-Haulers. And I think I guessed a market cap of something like $50 billion for America. And I I guess I really overestimated how many people needed U-Hauls because that's dramatically off. Uh, So a little bit of a spoiler there. But if you're not a listener of that podcast, I definitely encourage all of our our listeners on Industry Focus to also tune in for that. Um, But I've gone off on a tangent here. Before we get into Farfetch, Yasser, I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will want to hear about your story. You kind of went from podcast listener and now you're full-fledged analyst, but there's a lot of stuff that happened in between there. So uh, tell us about yourself a little bit. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm born and raised in Cairo, Egypt, actually. Uh, that's where I went to school. I learned English in college and uh, I went to the American University in Cairo there. And then, you know, I moved to the U.S., Uh, around 2007 or so to do a PhD in political science. Um, And, uh, you know, only after I had been in the U.S. for for a year or two did I actually start, you know, getting interested in the whole investing investing world. Um, And, you know, if you know anything about like sort of Egyptian culture, Arab culture in general, and, you know, stock markets are almost seen as casinos, like you're, you're supposed to avoid them like the plague. Uh, so I really kind of uh, went on a limb here by saying, you know what, there might be value actually uh, in, in doing this. And I started doing it on the side for, uh, you know, for a little bit. And, and I became initially I started with mutual funds and then ETFs. And then I was like, you know what, where is the fun in that? I want to pick my own stocks. Um, So I started educating myself and and just uh, bit by bit growing in confidence. And uh, here I am, you know, I I basically took me a few years to realize that this is my real passion. And uh, I kind of quit my other career that had been going on at that point, uh, both in policy and academia. And uh, I wanted to dedicate my uh, myself full time to finding, you know, great innovative companies with long runways ahead of them. That's what I love to do. 
Well, it's uh, truly amazing, and it, I will say this, it takes guts. You know, it's uh, easy for someone my age, right? I studied finance. It was kind of just like, okay, that's that's what I'll naturally do. I mean, you had an entire career and, and background, and uh, I think a lot of our listeners kind of view investing um, as a hobby and something they do on the side. And it, yeah, it takes guts to, to move into it as your full-time career. And uh, I can speak personally from working with you. I, I think that's been a good decision, at least thus far. And I know when you talk about looking at innovative and interesting companies, uh, the company we're talking about today definitely fits both of those boxes. In fact, you have your own, we'll talk about it at the end of the show, but you have your own checklist for businesses that you like to invest in. And this one scores up pretty well on the shimmy checklist here. Uh, so let's just dive right into it. This is a business that kind of correlates to a business that we've talked about before on Industry Focus. Back in December, Austin and I did a show on Revolve Group, which is a smaller competitor of sorts, you could say, to Farfetch. But Farfetch is not only the larger business, but also the relative outperformer. So Farfetch is up something like 500% over the past year versus Revolve's 180% gain. And neither of those are bad. Let's put that out there, right? Nothing to complain about if you own either of those businesses. Uh, It's definitely more of a testament to the business of luxury e-commerce than anything. But it does mean, obviously, that conversation we're going to have today will be really interesting. But putting that aside, assuming that our listeners are completely new to this industry, uh, what can you tell us about Farfetch and its business? Well, let me put it this way. If Etsy and Shopify had a baby in a luxury boutique shop, it would be Farfetch. I hope this this kind of uh, weird image will make a little more sense as we uh, go through the conversation a little bit. Um, but I think it's it's very important to kind of move beyond the immediate impression of Farfetch as just an, you know another e-retailer of luxury clothing. There's a lot more to the company than that. So Farfetch is the single largest marketplace for luxury retailers, boutiques, and brands. They help sell their products either on the digital platform. Um, So think Etsy, for example, that's kind of the model where you have a marketplace with sellers and customers, or through e-concessions or virtual storefronts. So think, again, Shopify, how they enable kind of small businesses to develop their own web commerce solutions. And that's kind of uh, what Farfetch also does for some of the world's top brands. Um, so, you know, it has the largest global, it is in fact the largest global online destination for luxury shopping with 3 million active customers, 1300 plus luxury sellers, including approximately all of the top 200 brands that exist around the world. Um, eventually, the company has a vision to become an, the operating system and uh, a digital enabler for the entire global luxury industry, both online uh, and offline. So, you know, the company is working on developing a suite of tech-powered backend and front-end solutions to help retailers and brands alike, from marketing to customer engagement and fulfillment and so on. Um, Now, you know, again, we were talking a lot about sort of some of the third-party stuff that they they do, but they also have a first-party retail business um, which, you know, through which they sell products through their uh, uh, Brown store, uh, as well as a company they acquired a couple of years ago called New Guards Group, which is a brand generation subsidiary of theirs uh, that effectively acts as a brand, a new, new brand incubator and has been actually quite successful for them. 
Um, and the last thing I'm going to say about their business model is that it generates impressive economics, both in terms of the take rate, which is about 30%, compare that to Etsy at 17.5, for example, or Shopify at 2.5%. So Farfetch is doing pretty well there. Um, and they're, they have about 35% in order contribution margins. And the best way to kind of, uh, you know, understand what order contribution margin means, it's uh, effectively customer acquisition cost divided by customer lifetime values. So in other words, how, how valuable is this customer to you after you have spent money to acquire that customer? And that order contribution margin, which is, again, already impressive at 35%, increases to about 55% for mature cohorts. Um, you know, you have an average order value of about $600 per order. Um, and so if you have these customers, if you're able to retain these customers, or should they have been able to, uh, they keep paying you over time and, and basically their lifetime value increases exponentially almost. Uh, and that is just one great aspect of their business model that I love. I think a lot of frequent listeners will will have had their minds blown by some of the numbers that you just mentioned. We spend a lot of time talking about these e-retailers, uh, how much money they spend to acquire customers, but more importantly, how much money those customers spend on the platform and what their take rate is. I remember we recently did a show over Poshmark when they filed their S1 to go public. And Poshmark, I think, has an average order value of somewhere around $30, uh, decent take rate, but nowhere near 30%. We're talking about Farfetch being a luxury e-retailer, right? Being on the higher end of that value chain, having an average order value of over $600 and a 30% take rate that increases, right? That as that person retains. So really some crazy numbers there when you think about just how much revenue and cash uh, Farfetch is able to pull in from their customers. And that's what we look for when we talk about consumer goods. But I know you working your way through the analyst development program, which I believe you're about to finish this week. Is that, is that right? Well, my colleagues are about to finish this week because I, I just had a newborn. Uh, I was allowed to uh, have an extension a little bit. So I, I'm, I'm taking a parental leave and uh, I'm, I should be done by mid to late March. Well, you should be taking way more time than you are. I completely forgot. Well, first of all, congratulations. Thank um, you. I am now feeling terrible that I even reached out to you to come on this podcast now, now knowing that you have a newborn at home now. So thank you for taking your time. This is a time. lot more fun than changing diapers. So I'd hope you're so. All good. <laughs> well, one of the things that you're always asked to look at whenever you go through analyst development programs, regardless of whenever you finish, is that the people who are behind the scenes running the show. It's the Buck Hartzell methodology, kind of understanding the management team. So how do you feel about Farfetch's management team? Do you think they're they're additive? I love the Farfetch management team. I, I specifically love um, their CEO and co-founder, and co-founder Jose Neves, um, because he's effectively been a veteran of the fashion industry. Um, and he, he has also dabbled in tech before. So he combined kind of both aspects of you know, being, a you know, sort of on the cutting edge of, of fashion, as well as uh, sort of being very knowledgeable of some of the trends uh, in technology, and was able to kind of, you know, thread the needle, if you will, uh, between the fashion industry, the, you know, the tech world and the small boutique owners to create Farfetch. He, he was able to kind of have this 
radical revolutionary vision that this highly fragmented, highly archaic industry um, just a few years back, I would say, um, was ripe for disruption. And that's exactly what he did by, uh, by, build it, by building Farfetch. He kind of created this entirely novel idea of what, what's called distributed stock. Um, where basically a particular item can be ordered, shipped, and delivered to a customer in another country or continent without Farfetch actually holding or owning too much of that centralized inventory. Um, so he's acting almost like a you know a middleman with impressive take rates, um, without you know having that baggage of all the inventories that that the usual wholesale retailers um, kind of end up doing you know. Companies like My Teresa or Yox Netapokte um, or or others. So um, you know, I I also like the board of directors. Uh, they have some pretty high uh, high profile figures over there. They have Victor Lewis, uh, who is the former CEO of Tapestry. Uh, they have uh, J. Michael Evans, the former president of Alibaba Group, and Jillian Tans, the former chairwoman of Booking.com, just to name a few. So. It's a pretty well-stacked uh, management and board. Uh, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Got some heavy hitters there. <laughs> exactly. And when you look at its business, you mentioned uh, they have this kind of Etsy-like platform. But when you break down their revenue, uh, what's really driving growth? How does, how does the business make money? Right. So the business is actually the way they make money is um, divided across three different ways, three venues, if you will. The first one is the digital platform solutions. That's a kind of marketplace we talk about similar to Etsy, right? That's about it constitutes about two thirds of adjusted revenue for the company. So that's by far. Uh, their cash cow, if you will. And that's, um, you know, uh, 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 an area that they really generate a lot of resources to. Another part of the business is a brand platform or e-concessions, virtual storefronts, if you will. So that's kind of the similar to Shopify's model of enabling uh, sort of small, uh, small businesses to develop their own websites and e-commerce solutions. Farfetch effectively goes to either emerging brands or to um, established brands and tells them, hey, I can build your e-commerce presence in, I don't know, in Saudi Arabia or in Egypt or in uh, Vietnam at no cost to you. So you don't have to invest any money and expect a return on invested capital for a certain uh, amount uh, and take that risk. Um, so you know, enabling that e-commerce uh, ability for that for, for those brands has has been very valuable to the brands, but also highly accretive to um, to Farfetch itself. And then finally, by far the smallest uh, you know fragment of their of their uh, revenue is the in-store purchases. So they own a couple of, uh, sort of uh, venues here. They have uh, the Brown Store, and they also have uh, pop-up stores for their uh, off-white brand, which is, again, uh, part of the New Guards Group subsidiary that we talked about earlier. Um, I, I'm happy also to talk about their geographic breakdown of revenue, um, if you'd like, because that's also kind of impressive in it by itself. You know, if you look at sort of how it's divided, the, you know, it's basically, it's almost evenly distributed across three segments, the Americas, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, Asia Pacific. Now, Europe, Middle East, and Africa is the highest so far. America is the lowest. 
But one should expect the Americas to eventually catch up with that with that group once they dedicate a bit more resources. And I'm relying here, by the way, on figures from 2019 because that that's the latest 20F that they they have actually produced. Um, we're waiting for for their new one any uh, any day now. Um, but you know the thing is, Asia Pacific has been almost on the same level as Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and almost one third of revenue. And yet, China has actually been a really, really small part of that, which means that the opportunity there is still huge uh, once they actually dedicate some uh, resources towards developing that opportunity, which they are doing. It's funny you mentioned China because when you talk about the brand platform aspect, so these aren't sales that are happening directly, right? It's not that 30, 50% take rate. It's the the brand building out in foreign countries that they're doing for the brands that they own. It reminds me of a Chinese company that has been such a laggard in my portfolio. I would imagine not too many of our listeners are familiar with it. Uh, the company is Baozun. Um, the ticker's BZUN. It was my first ever stock pitch here at The Fool. Um, I did my undergrad in China. I was really excited by its prospects. And it was an interesting business because in addition to having this distribution distribution business, which they've since uh, kind of spun out, they've actually focused on building out foreign brands in China. So they you know, would approach or be approached by brands like Nike or Lululemon, who wanted to sell in China, wanted to have their own brand commerce, but didn't have the resources or the strategy to build out in these foreign countries. And the idea that a business could come in and kind of offer a one-stop shop for providing those solutions really attracted me to Baozun. It's it's been a mismanaged business, though, so it's not fair for me to compare Farfetch to, to Baozun. In fact, Baozun has kind of lost out because they weren't able to get those really premium and expensive brands that I would imagine are way more attractive to be on a Farfetch-like platform, to have Farfetch as a, a partnership with. So it's it'll be fun to watch them try to build that out in China. I... I believe in the business model. And I think that even without China, um, EMEA, the, the Europe, Middle East, Africa region, has been such an impressive foothold for them that they probably don't even need China to be successful, uh, maybe to justify today's valuation. But to be a successful business, they could probably fail in China and still be perfectly fine. But I, in particular, am really looking forward to see what happens with their expansion into China. Uh, but China aside, when you look at the luxury e-commerce industry, clearly more attractive than the industry that Baozun was going after. Uh, but when you look at that industry, what excites you or what, what attracts you to investing in the space? So you're asking exactly the right question, Emily. Uh, I'm excited about e-luxury, but not luxury itself. Now, the luxury industry has historically been rife with inefficiencies, segmentation, big egos, brutal seasonality and shifts, shifts of taste. So like I would never, for example, I have never invested in any particular luxury brand, mainly because, you know, tastes change over time and what might be fashionable this year might not be next year. And, and sales are, you know, highly cyclical in that respect. So what I like about, you know, e-luxury is that you don't actually have to choose which, you know, uh, style you're going. Um, you know, you're you're effectively, you know, capturing everything, no matter what the brand in vogue is at this particular moment. So, putting that aside, you know, a rising share of spending on luxury products has become has started to move online. So, we're starting to see a secular shift here 
of luxury shoppers who have traditionally opted to spend all of their money in store to actually start spending some money online. Um, million and and we have other trends also that are working in favor of e-luxury including the fact that millions of people in china india and elsewhere are joining the ranks of upper middle class or upper class and they're going to add to that cohort of luxury sh shoppers out there um additionally millennials are increasingly developing you know a taste for for luxury uh these days and they are more likely obviously to do much of their shopping online than some of the older generations. Now, all of these you know, combine to create tailwinds for luxury e-commerce in general. And I believe Farfetch as the single biggest platform in that industry stands to benefit tremendously uh, over time. And I know the industry, because it is attractive for all the reasons that you just mentioned, it also is increasingly competitive. I mentioned we talked about Revolve Group, but there are a number of other companies, uh, companies that I'm going to have a trouble naming. I mean, Ukes, Net-A-Porter. I mean, these are businesses I, I can't even imagine spending that much money <laughs> buying luxury goods online. But the point is, demand has clearly been there that a lot of competitors have entered into the space. What can you tell us about the competition and what sets potentially far-fetch apart sure well you know emily if you're in the market for a thirty thousand dollar sheepskin coat i uh i can definitely direct you to far-fetch i dare to uh, dream <laughs> <laughs> i have personally so as much as i love the company and it has been you know uh one of my favorite holdings in my portfolio and also i pitched uh pitched it as part of the investor development program uh, I have never made a purchase on Farfetch and for a reason. I, I'm, I'm not part of that cohort of people who are buying um, those kinds of high ticket items. However, um, I think it's, you know, when we talk about the competitive landscape for Farfetch, it's important to keep in mind that it is the, the only scaled luxury marketplace. So if we put it another way, you know, there is no one else that's actually competing with Farfetch on that scale. Um, the competitors are likely to be one of three groups. Uh, the first one is online brand e-commerce. So Prada.com or any brand.com, basically, if you're buying direct from the uh, from that brand. Uh, the other competitor would be the omni-channel multi-brand wholesalers. Think Tex, Saks Fifth Avenue, for example, either in-store or their website. And finally, online multi-brand retailers like Hughes Net-A-Porter or My Teresa. Um, now, these competitors effectively have no scale, either globally or technologically, to offer all the things Farfetch offers both to its customers and brand and retailer partners. So Farfetch, for example, operates in around 200 countries around the world uh, and can, can ship and, and do logistics and all of that in 200 uh, countries around the world. I none of these companies can do that. Um, additionally, you know, the amount of products that are available in Farfetch and the diversity of brands is just unmatched. Nothing comes close. I believe it's something like 12 times the uh, the number of brands that are available on Yux uh, net a which is its second biggest competitor in that space. And let me add one more thing. 80% of items listed on the platform are exclusive to Farfetch. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that they're not selling anywhere else. It means that the only online marketplace that they're selling is on Farfetch, as well as the brand website itself. So, you know, if you want to find the highest diversity of, of items 
you know, Farfetch is definitely going to be your bet. And it might be worth pointing out, I, I know this is a question that a lot of listeners may be asking themselves because at least on industry focus, we spend a lot of time covering resellers. Uh, the issue of fake goods isn't really a concern for Farfetch the way that it can be with some of their other competitors that are focused on resale because these are direct from the brand. So you're talking about uh, the actual producers themselves partnering with Farfetch, listing their products. You're not talking uh, about people the way that you were, say, Poshmark, where somebody buys a, a, an expensive you know, suit or whatever from a brand and then looks to resell it. So worth clarifying to our listeners that as you're thinking about Farfetch's business, and you think about luxury goods in general, having the issue with with fake goods, a little bit less of a concern for a business like Farfetch because they do go direct to source and again, helps helps prop up that $600 average order value as a price point. And before we move on here, I, I do want to get to your to your special checklist. That's my favorite part of what we have planned for today's episode. I think everybody should have a special checklist. I don't have one yet, but I think everybody should. Uh, what do you think about Farfetch's competitive advantage? I know that you like a lot of different things about the business, but boiling down what makes Farfetch special, what stands out to you? Sure. I I mean, if we have all day, I'll I'll, I'll go on, but I'm going to try and be quick here and just speed through uh, sort of some of the aspects I think make Farfetch stand out from the competition. So the first the first competitive advantage in my mind is the fact that Farfetch has been an aggregator of, of a fragmented industry. They have the highest collection of brands, including most of the top 200 global brands, and as well as the highest product selection uh, within these brands and any other e-commerce platform. Secondly, um, you know, Farfetch does enjoy a pretty strong brand image uh, that some of its competitors, like, you know, wholesalers use closed stores like the Real Real or the Everything store that's Amazon, which is now trying to get into luxury, uh, are going to struggle with. Luxury shoppers are very much brand focused and, you know, when you buy a luxury item, it's often a function of emotion. So, you know, you don't want to be going to Amazon to do that. Um, that's that's not really what it's for. Um, Farfetch plays, plays that card very, very well compared to others. Um, a third competitive advantage in my mind is, how, you know, their business model, which is inventory light. So the company is rarely stuck with unsold inventory and can quickly and nimbly offer the latest fashion items both through their own label and through the brand storefronts or e-concessions. And 52% of their gross merchandise volume is third party, just to keep that in context. Unlike, you know, retailers and wholesalers who effectively own the entire inventory and then have to sell it and often engage in highly uh, competitive promotional behavior that presses down their margins, uh, especially over time. Now, Farfetch also has network enjoys network effects. Uh, it has three million active customers and thirteen hundred plus luxury sellers. And so, basically, the sellers want to be where the customers are, and that's Farfetch. And the customers want to be where the sellers and brands are, and that's again Farfetch. So the network effects really work to their favor there. Um, Farfetch is also omni-channel, so it gives the, the shoppers uh, the option to either pick up in store. Um, or to have the item delivered to them uh, at their home. So, and, and the interesting part here is that Farfetch is actually able to glance through the data that their uh, sort of boutique and retail partners uh, 
you know, generate offline. So when your customer, when your far-fetched customer goes to pick up an, an item from these stores and decides to, I don't know, maybe go for, for those extra pair of shoes uh, that are on display there, Farfetch gets to know exactly what the customer ordered on the spot and therefore is able to custom tailor their offering to that customer uh, in the future based on their shopping preferences, both online and offline. Uh, so that, that's, that's pretty special to me. Um, Farfetch is also an end-to-end -end platform. Again, it's not just a retailer or a website. Um, it actually helps brands and boutiques and retailers with everything from marketing to uh, logistics um, to back office uh, or back end operations. So, you know, it, it develops a whole solution that basically takes the pain for most of these partners um, out of the equation. And that's something that no other company is offering them, um, perhaps with them, maybe the exception of Shopify, but Shopify does not have a marketplace. Um, they also, you know, give brands control over pricing and visual appearance, which other competitors don't. Uh, so if you are a brand, if you're a top 10 brand, let's say you're a Montclair or you're uh, Gucci or Versace or, you know, one of those top 10 brands, you want to make sure that your item, when it goes on sale on a third party platform, that it's not discounted right? Or in get, you have this kind of, because once your items get discounted, that kind of reflects negatively on the brand itself. So by giving control over pricing to the brands themselves, that takes, you know, uh, that gives the, the brand that much control and, and gives, you know, Farfetch itself a competitive advantage over, over other retailers. Um, I don't know, I could go on and on, but, you know, uh, one, one more thing I'm going to say here is that Farfetch is truly global um so you know the they have multilingual websites they they partner with local stores in whatever country and over 90 percent of transactions on the platform are cross-border um so that's incredible uh, and recently they've also been really i mentioned china before you know they've been really paying attention to the chinese opportunity here they have uh recently announced joint ventures with uh, Alibaba and uh, Richemont uh, to basically launch on the Tmall uh, luxury marketplace uh, in China. And uh, that, you know, again, remains to be a big opportunity for them and they, are, they stand to benefit uh, tremendously. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to talk more about sort of their active customer growth and all of these things if we have time, but uh, I'll, I'll stop here. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to like, and I would encourage any of our listeners who are maybe who weren't convinced, not that the, you could not be convinced by what you just said, but that aren't convinced that that Farfetch's experience is differentiated, spend a little bit of time poking around on Far Farfetch's website, uh, switch your location if you have a VPN or something, switch your language up, and you can really get that sense about what a global business Farfetch is. Uh, they really are focused on the highest tiers, the most expensive products to the most uh, luxury demanding countries across the world, which, hey, believe it or not, for our American listeners, it's not the United States. Uh, so if you've never heard of this business, if you're comparing it in your mind to say the real, real uh, to Poshmark, to Etsy, well, those are all great businesses and they're all interesting in their own respects. None of them really paint out quite the holistic picture that Farfetch has created, just becoming that end-to-end -end platform for everything luxury.
and Emily, if I can jump in here, just since you brought up the real real, um, you know, one thing that has often been said, well, you know, Farfetch has just benefited from the fact that everybody has been under lockdown. People can't go to their luxury stores. Um, and, that, and that's why sort of you're seeing sales increase. But the fact of the matter is Farfetch has been increasing their active customers by 50% year over year while rates of active customer growth are actually declining for, for other platforms like the real real uh so there is actually a kind of a, a tale of two cities here um and that speaks volumes about sort of the attractiveness of the farfetch platform compared to others as well as uh sort of the fact that it may be we've we, we just might be on the precipice of them kind of like uh taking off in a in, in, a, in a sort of a secular direction yeah, I'm laughing to myself because you you say it so kindly. You know, you compare it to the real real. There's there look, Farfetch is growing users. Real real is losing users. Uh, they're not just growing customers; their active customer growth was something like fifty percent year over year. I mean, that's massive customer expansion, and that's not purely as a result of the pandemic. This is a business that was growing pre-pandemic. So I love that comparison. <laughs> you're, you're very diplomatic about uh, the comparison there. The Real Real is a great company, but Farfetch, I think that's just, again, a level of differentiation that we're seeing in the Farfetch platform that you don't quite have with their competitors. Uh, but I, I really buried the lead here. Um, I really want to get to your to your checklist. I know you have your own kind of special formula, if you can call it that. You, you affectionately call it the, the shimmy checklist here about what you look for when building out your own personal portfolio. I know this is a company that you own individually in your portfolio, so I'm excited to see uh, Tell us, what's your checklist and how does Farfetch rank up? Well, let's hope this checklist becomes as famous as Jason Moser's war on Cash Basket. Uh, I told him he should receive royalties for that, by the way, but he never did. So he, he's too kind. Um, my checklist is effectively a list of features I like to see in any business in which, you know, I, I plan to invest. Um, the first of these is the vision. You know, is that company's vision radical? That's a good thing if it is. Uh, for me, radical, disruptive, revolutionary, that's good. But it also has to be credible, right? So it has to be achievable, not, not, some, not some pie in the sky uh, you know, vision of making everyone around the world a happier person. That, you know, that might be a good, a good goal to have, but I don't know how realistic it is. Um, so for Farfetch becoming sort of the, as I said before, like the operating system um, of the of the of the luxury industry around the world, that's a radical, you know, vision to have. Yet I believe it is possible, and uh, and so I'll, I'll give them a pass on that. Uh, the second the second item I check for is high and sustained revenue growth, um, and Farfetch easily passes that mark. It has had uh, double digit. Uh, growth now to the tune of almost 60 plus percent year over year uh, for full fiscal year 2020. Um, you know, and it shows no signs of necessarily of slowing down necessarily uh, very much. I mean, we were talking about Revolve earlier. Revolve is has actually uh, their sales declined by about three four percent year over year, whereas Farfetch has increased by 60 percent. So. Again, that, that's a pretty good sign. Um, the third item I like to check for is the rundle or the recurring revenue bundle. Uh, you know, do they actually have a, a suite of, uh, of products that they charge other 
sort of companies to use. Now, Farfetch doesn't quite have that yet, but I believe that they are potentially on their way to doing it in the future as they develop that, as I said before, that suite of end-to-end you know, services that they can offer to brands and to retailers. Um, the fourth item I check for is standout technology. Does the technology, you know, really stand out from competitors? Is, this, is there something special here? I would say they they do have some standout technology, particularly in their AI and kind of the and data analytics, where they are able to target customers in a very granular level uh, compared to other sort of e-commerce plays in that sector. Um, but again, it's nothing completely unique or, you know, unimitable, uh, if you will, inimitable. Uh, so, you know, I would, I, I don't give them a complete pass on this. Um, and then I check for global footprint and scalability. Does the company operate globally? Or if it doesn't, can it scale its sales and operations globally if it chooses to? So does, does the product or the service have global appeal? And in this case, it passes the mark on both. Uh, it, it operates in almost 200 countries and has a you know and has scaled quite quite massively over time. Um, network effects also I check for. So you know if you're not familiar with network effects, it means that you know the more your platform grows, the better it gets. The more buyers you have, the more sellers you're going to have, and the more sellers you have, the more buyers you're going to have. And so there is a virtual cycle there. Um, I also check for them for the total addressable market. Does the company have a really sizable total addressable market ahead? And you know, some of the most you know con- conservative estimates would put that uh, TAM for Fetch around three hundred billion dollars, but it could potentially rise to three hundred fifty billion dollars per year. Um, in man, that's a lot of money. That spent is on a lot of money, and Farfetch is at less than one percent. of that opportunity. So the runway is still, you know, not no pun intended, the run the runway is still is still quite long here. Um, And finally, I check for high switching costs, you know, do in this case, maybe the for for customers, the switching costs are not particularly strong, because, you know, maybe it doesn't cost you that much if you uh, went directly to Prada.com as opposed to Farfetch. But for suppliers and brands um, and, and, and retailers, the switching costs are quite high because if you lose that channel, you're effectively losing a, a massive audience all around the globe um, who could become potential customers. And you're ceding that ground to competitors. And that's why you find even the most reluctant of the most exclusive brands, most recently Montclair, decided to go on the Farfetch platform because they simply could not afford not to be on it. Um, so from that perspective, for the brands, there are significant high switching costs here. Um, so, you know, Farfetch meets six out of those eight uh, on the, on my checklist. And my philosophy is I'll invest in any company that passes five out of these eight, or at least I'll consider investing. Uh, so, you know, Farfetch, I believe, has earned its place in my portfolio. Clearly one that you're a big fan of. So this last question feels a little silly to ask, but probably important because with every investment, even when it ranks a six out of eight on the shimmy checklist, there are things that can kill the investment thesis. So as we wrap up here, when you think about the risks that come with owning Farfetch, what one or two things really stand out to you as things that would be thesis breakers for your investment? Mm. 
So thesis breakers, I, I, you know, I think the most probably the most dangerous uh, development, if you will, that could happen to Farfetch is if China doesn't pan out, um, if they are. So two days ago, they had a soft launch of the Farfetch uh, sort of platform on, on Tmall's luxury pavilion. Now, again, they're the valuation is lofty at this point and the stock has run up tremendously over the past uh, few months and year so you know if farfetch cannot break into the chinese uh, market um i think a lot of people are going to kind of reconsider the valuation and potentially re-rate the valuation on the company down so this is a threat to the to the stock not so much to the business the business will continue to be just fine um whether or not china succeeds um you know there's also a, another question that really that kind of weighs on my mind which is do luxury consumers really want to be to do a bulk, the bulk of their shopping online um you know it used to be that if you're going to spend a few thousand dollars on an item you probably want to go into that luxury boutique or, or or brand store get the vip treatment be hidden from public view uh sort of be given a glass of champagne and really pampered and just you know have that kind of experience uh as you're placing that order so i think we really want to look out as to how well does farfetch do post pandemic and if it's able to maintain uh, kind of the customer engagement um, on the platform kind of as it has been doing uh, so far. Um, you know, there are other risks to the business, including bigger competitors kind of muscling in into the space. You know, we've had Amazon now trying for at least over a year to uh, break into the luxury fashion e-commerce market to little success, it seems. Um, but that was honestly to be expected. Just the Amazon brand does not really translate into luxury shopping. So, you know, uh, I think it's not as big a threat as some of the, um, you know, some of the analysts have made it to, out to be at the time. And finally, I'll, I'll say a word of caution here. This talk has not been for the faint of heart. Uh, you know, if you're a fan of roller coasters, you're a far you're a fan of far-fetched stock. Uh, this this stock was as low as eight dollars, uh, just uh, you know, in October of 2019, and was as high as seventy plus dollars just you know a couple of weeks ago. Um, it has been an immense you know volatile ride, and I do not see a reason why it would stop being volatile, at least in the medium or short term. So you know, if you if you're in for this kind of you know explosive growth, and you can see that exponential opportunity ahead. Uh, you just have to buckle up for the ride. And nothing drives that point home more than seeing that Farfetch, the day that we're taping this on the third or second, March 2nd, is down something like 10% on virtually no news. This is this is the volatility that you get with a lot of these high flyers. So I hope that does kind of, yeah, really drive that point home for our listeners. Uh, but Yasser, Thank you so much for joining me today. Not only did you bring just a ton of research and a, clearly a ton of knowledge about Farfetch, but you did it. And I forgot you have a newborn at home. <laughs> so I, I can't thank yes. you enough for taking your time out of your day, not only to come on the show, but to come on, answer our questions and, and prep. I mean, a lot of work went into this. And uh, it's, this is my formal apology, but I also formal thank you for joining. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, Emily. It's really my pleasure to be here. And I love being with you. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet at us at MFIndustryFocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Yasser El Shimmy, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! <laughs>